The Superior Court of, of the State of Texas, County of Hayes, is now in session. The Honorable Dave Stewart, Judge Presiding, please be seated. Uh, turn off your cell phones. Good morning. Am I on? Is it on now? Okay, thank you. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, uh, counselors. I understand, uh, BJ, uh, that we have a case before us of a group of Christians known as Seventh-day Adventists. Is that true? That's true. And I understand they're on trial for their faith today. I understand Seventh-day Adventists claim to be Christians, claim to follow the Bible as their rule of faith, and yet it seems like their doctrines are so strange, you might even say peculiar, and seem to be so out of step with the rest of mainstream Christianity. So we have a group of prosecutors who would like to challenge this group of Seventh-day Adventist Christians on their faith to see if it can truly be defended from what the parties have stipulated to as our rule book, not a penal code, but the Bible is the rule book today. So the way this is going to work, we could go ahead and have, uh, are the prosecutors ready to ask your questions? Mr. Beck, are you ready? If you please step forward. Each of the prosecutors are going to ask a question, and we're seeking volunteers who think they can answer the question. And once someone answers the question to the satisfaction of the prosecutor, that question will be done. If, they, if the first witness does not answer it to their satisfaction, a second witness will have an opportunity to answer the question, and that will be it. This is not who wants to be a millionaire. There are no lifelines. There are no calls. There are no shouting out from the audience. The person at the witness stand is the only one that answers the questions. But you're you have an opportunity to volunteer to do that. Mr. Beck, are you ready? Yes. Go ahead. Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning, members of the court. Good morning. Is this on? Testing, testing. Testing. Is it on? Okay. Uh, good morning, Your Honor. Good morning, members of the court. Can you hear? Yes. The problem is they build these courtrooms. It's built by the lowest bidder, but we'll do our best. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists have long derived their prophetic identity uh, from the figure of the woman and her children represented in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. And specifically, um, this imagery in Revelation 12 begins with the figure of this woman uh, whom they identify as the true church. What's ironic, however is that unquestionably the child that is mentioned in verse 5 is Jesus. I think even Seventh-day Adventists would agree with that. And yet the figure of the woman that gives birth to this child uh, clearly is a symbol of the Virgin Mary, who we know in Scripture is the one that gave birth to Jesus. And if this was true, it would undermine and it would really cast great doubt upon the idea that Seventh-day Adventists can identify themselves as the remnant mentioned in verse 17. And so this morning, Your Honor, I'd like to see some evidence contrary to that, if there be any. <laughs> All right, is there a witness who would like to come forward to answer this question? I have a hand. Go ahead and come up. So I'll summarize it. Uh, how can Seventh-day Adventists claim that the woman in Revelation 12 is none other than the Virgin Mary? Do we have someone that's willing to come answer the question? Yes, ma'am. Come on forward, please. Come quickly without running. Right here, ma'am. Please state your name. Uh, Tandalyn Harris. Please uh, talk into the microphone. Oh, Tandalyn so Harris. Thank you, ma'am. Go ahead. Well, we don't believe that it's the Virgin Mary. We believe it's a representative of the church. Um, that it's the Raymond Church. Um, the church represents God's people, uh, pure people that's waiting on the Lord. My question is, uh, it's clear that 
this woman gives birth to Jesus. Verse 5, even Seventh-day Adventists would acknowledge is a symbol or is the description of Jesus. And so if the woman gives birth to Jesus, is this not the Virgin Mary? Uh, the, she does give birth. That is the Virgin Mary that gives birth to Jesus, yes. But this, the revelation is symbolic. And so it represents the church, um, Virgin Mary having the, the baby, and the word coming forth, and it's just like different dispensations, a time, a period. So are you saying it does represent the Virgin Mary and the church? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Well, because you have the Virgin Mary at that time period that she had Jesus, and then it's just a time period take place. And then um, the church in a different period, and it becomes the Raymond Church all right, thank you, Mrs. Harris. Okay. Thank, thank you, thank appreciate you. it. Is there another witness that would like to take a shot at this question? <laughs> Sir, you're in a suit. <laughs> I'm on this side. Oh, okay. Please state your name. Oh, okay. Uh, yes. Come on forward, sir. State your name, sir. My name is Matt Dooley. Can you put that one? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. My name is Matt Dooley. Um, while it is true that the Mary did give birth, but if you look in the context of Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, uh, this woman that we're speaking about is clothed with the sun. She's clothed with the moon. Uh, it says the moon is under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. So, looking at that verse and looking at Virgin Mary, if it's speaking of literal Virgin Mary, how can, can you explain to me how she would be clothed with the sun? How would she be uh, the, the, the moon under her feet? So, obviously, when you look at the verse and the, the woman, it's talking in symbolic language. And so, which the Son uh, represents the Son of Righteousness, Jesus Christ. So she was clothed, the woman is clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So if you look at just the context, it's obviously symbolism, because the literal mother of Jesus is not clothed with the Son, or she's, neither did she stand on the moon. So... Is there, okay, is there any other evidence that it's symbolic? I mean, I agree with you so far. Is there any other evidence in the chapter that indicates that this woman is symbolic? Is there any other passage in this, in this chapter that would indicate that it could not be a literal? And even if it's symbolic, how do we know it's not Mary? Because isn't the man-child symbolic of Jesus? Right. No, he's right so far. There's, is anybody, oh, not the audience, right? <laughs> Who's right, the judge? No, uh, sorry. <laughs> the judge, remember, the judge is always right. <laughs> I agree with him so far, Your Honor. If there, is there any other evidence that you can give in this chapter that would help uh, fortify or, or buttress this argument that you're presenting right now? Is there any other evidence that would suggest that this could not be a literal description of the Virgin Mary? Are you looking up the verse in the Bible or are you texting a friend? Um, <laughs> both, no. <laughs> All right. No, I, I'm, I'm looking at it on my, on my phone. Anything is else? Is it allowed in this court? If it's a Bible. Okay. We did say turn off your cell phones. <laughs> okay. All right, well, yeah, um, if you give me about uh, another 10 or 15 minutes. All right, we, we're, we're pressed for time. Actually, it makes a good point. We're really pressed for time, so we've got to get right to the point. All right, thank you, Mr. Dooley. What, what, what else were you looking for, Mr. Beck? I would just say that verse 6 gives us, as well as verse 14, uh, he's, the arguments that were presented are very good. I want to say that verse 6 also gives us further evidence once we establish the fact that the symbolism 
governs or is the method of interpreting this chapter that this woman could not literally be standing on the moon, could not literally be wearing the sun, then the time period becomes literal, or sorry, uh, symbolic as well. And if you look at verse 6, this woman who is in the wilderness for 1,203 score days, we know that in Bible prophecy, in symbolic passages, a day equals what? A year. And we know that the Virgin Mary did not live for 1,260 years. So, prosecution rests, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Mr. Myers, are you ready? So uh, I hear that you Seventh-day Adventists believe that um, the wicked do not burn forever. So I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 25 and verse 41. Matthew 25, verse 41. Uh, the Bible says, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It is obvious from this verse that the fire is indeed everlasting. And in case you had any doubt about that, I'd like for you to turn also to the book of Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. In verse 11, the Bible speaking of those who receive the mark in their forehead or in their hand, it says, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels. And in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. And so, given these two verses, the Bible clearly uh, reveals that the wicked are indeed tormented forever and ever. And um, by taking away this teaching uh, of what the actual wages of sin is, uh, you actually take away uh, the very thing that can motivate people to love a loving God. All right, do we have someone to answer this question? Yes, ma'am, come forward, please. State your name. Uh, Rachel Corrigan. Good morning, Miss um, Corrigan. Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Um, <laughs> good morning. Objection, Your Honor. <laughs> Overruled. Um, if you turn to First Samuel, um, and I think it's the first chapter. Hannah um, was going to have a baby, and she asked the Lord, and when the Lord granted her request, she said, um, let me find a verse. Verse 11, um, about halfway, said, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And, and you go to verse 24 in the last part. It says, not until the child's weaned, and I will, will I take him. He may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So forever would mean the extent of a lifetime. Also in Malachi 4, the great day of um, the Lord, it speaks about, in verse 3, you shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. And um, verse 1 
For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Any follow-up questions? May I speak with my um, fellow? Yes. So, uh, what is Matthew 25, verse 41, talking about then when it mentions that the fire is everlasting? It's the extent of the person's lifetime. It burns until they're dead. Why are you clapping? Sustained. I agree. Why are you clapping? That's okay. Okay. Uh, good answer. Good answer. And uh, I'm going to share a little bit of, uh, you know, some other things that, that you would consider when you're looking at these verses. First of all, in Revelation chapter 14, in the very text itself, it tells us that um, the wicked will be tormented in the presence of the Lamb. Very important thing to understand is that if the wicked actually are tormented forever, which means that they would be in the presence of the Lamb forever, it actually would put the wicked in heaven because that's where the Lamb is. Uh, So that's one thing to think about. Number two, um, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, that our God is a, who knows it, consuming fire. The reason why the fire is everlasting is because the fire is actually God himself. Uh, So when the Bible says that the wicked are tormented in the presence of the lamb, they're actually being tormented in his presence because he is a consuming fire. Um, Finally, if you look at Psalm 37 and verse 20, it says that the wicked will vanish away, they will consume away into smoke. So the smoke of their torment doesn't say that they are being tormented forever. It says the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever. They vanish away. They cease to be. Um, the, the scriptures you use to, um, to show that forever uh, is subjective or good scriptures. There are other scriptures that can be used as well. So uh, that was a good perspective. And one more thing that, that you should understand is that... Um, People, many people believe that hellfire is the greatest motivator to serve God. Like if you, if you tell a person they're going to burn forever, that's a great way to fall in love with a loving God. Um, the fact, though, is that the wages of sin is not eternal torment. It is death. And very simple way to prove that is that we know that Jesus paid the full penalty for our sins. And if he did not, we would all be lost. So the question is, did Jesus suffer forever or did he die? He died. He did not suffer eternally, which means, you know, if the wages of sin was eternal torment, then Jesus got a major discount. He didn't pay the whole price. Um, So the death of Christ on the cross proves that the wages of sin is death, not eternal torment. So those are just various aspects you could look at. There's a lot more we could say on it, but uh, good answer. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. All right, Mr. Kim, are you ready? Your Honor, I'd like to begin with a question for the members of the court. It's just a yes or no question. If the answer is no, please raise your hand. If the answer is yes, just keep your hands down. Is 666 the mark of the beast? Yes or no? I see. So you want them to raise their hand if they say yes? The answer is no. If the answer is no, raise your hand. Okay. I can see the majority of you have got it wrong because the answer is no. 666 is not the mark of the beast. 666 is the number of the beast. And I want to point out that you Adventists have it wrong in saying that the beast is the papacy and that 666 refers to 
the title of the Pope. Many of you are saying that the numerical value of the Pope's title, which is Vicarious Philly Day, comes out to 666. However, the Roman Catholic apologist, Patrick Madrid, he, he claims that 666 applies to Ellen Gould White, your prophetess. And on top of that, your prophetess at a young age was struck with a stone and received a deadly wound, and the doctors thought, the doctors thought she would never recover. So what do you have to say about that? All right, do we have someone? Ma'am, please come forward. Please state your name. Lene. Duncan. Okay, so um, if we look at the, um, the uh, description, the number 666 or 666 is actually a Roman number. And um, if we were to take a Roman number like, and try to apply it to somebody who is an American, it doesn't equate. Um, but we know that the Pope is Roman, and the Roman numerals of his name, Vicarious Philly Day, add up to 666. So. Okay, that's good. Is there, is there anything more you can add to that besides just that point? Okay. What, what are you asking? Really? We're saying that 666 applies to Ellen Gold White. Uh-huh. Why does it not apply to Ellen Gold White, besides the point you've made? Hmm. Okay, so um, when we look at the description of the beast um, it says he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Um, but remember, Ellen G. White was causing us to, to worship God in heaven. Um, but this um, beast is described as as having, he has power and he stands in the place of God. He, he causes people to worship, follow after him, and then also because he's exalting himself, then that means he's exalting the devil, the beast, or the dragon devil. Does right. that Thank help? you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, the first point she made was a really good one. We cannot apply the Latin numbering system to an English name. Okay, Vicarious Philly Day, that is a Latin name. Um, secondly, in order to arrive at the numerical value of 666, you have to do a little cheating. You have to treat the W in Ellen White as two Vs. Okay, and you can't do that. And by the way, the, the letter W doesn't even appear in the Latin language. Um, secondly, um, Ellen White, Ellen G. White is not a blasphemous name, as is Vicarious Philly Day, which means Vicar, the Son of God. Um, and Ellen White is not a beast. She did not arise out of Western Europe. Um, she arose out of the United States. And on, on top of that, um, the beast was wounded at the end of its career. Ellen White was a, little, was a little child and was struck with a stone, whereas the beast was wounded with a sword. So it's interesting to see how, how far people will carry this to, um, to label Ellen White as the beast. Thank you very much. Mr. Is it? Sorky. Sorky, yes. Thank you. Your Honor, on a side note, I've tested my name with and without middle name, and it didn't add up. It didn't add up to 666? No. No. Very good. Great. Okay. <laughs> I'm a Roman Catholic. I've been attending meetings by some group, uh, amazing, amazing facts. 
And, and the Sabbath can make some sense, um, but baptism. I was sprinkled as a baby. My parents were absolutely sincere. The priest was sincere. And I think that sincerity carries over, if I make any religious change, I do not need to get baptized, especially not get pushed under water. And I have a proof from the Bible for that. Uh, in Mark 16, 16, it does say, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. But very interesting then, he who does not believe will be condemned. Well, I believe, so I will not be condemned. And that second line in Mark 16, 16, doesn't say if you're not baptized, you're condemned. It just says if you don't believe. So all you have to do is believe, and then you're not condemned. And we, we even have a case study, uh, the thief on the cross. I, I learned in the meetings just a couple nights ago, uh, Pastor Kim talked about Luke 23, 43, and, and the comma. They made a big deal out of some comma. I'm still not clear on that. But, but what I am clear on is the thief on the cross absolutely did not get baptized. And it looks like he will be in heaven. Now or later, I'm still sorting that out. But there's heaven without baptism. So I, I'm just wondering why the evangelist and the Bible worker is pushing so hard to get me baptized. So your question is, why should you be baptized? Well, why should I get baptized when we have a precedence in the Bible of somebody not getting baptized? And as long as you believe, you're not condemned. All right. We have a, uh, I see a young man uh, with his hand up. Please come forward. Please state your name. My name is Jafar Pilot. Pardon? Jafar Pilot. Like in the Bible, Noah's son, you know. Jephthah? Yes, sir. But you said Jephthah Pilot? Yes, sir. Last name. That's another Bible character. Pilot, do you yes, really sir. want to be? Okay. Okay. <laughs> all right. okay. All right. Sir, do you have a criminal record at all? Okay. Go ahead. Okay. See, um, the first thing I want to say is when the thief on the cross, let's go there. He, he asked Jesus to remember him in heaven, right? And he said he would. But the thing is, he didn't have to get baptized because he wasn't able to because he was on his deathbed, right? And in Mark 16, 16, before it said, go to preach the gospel to the world and to the gospel to every creature. That means as long as we receive the gospel, then we have to believe to be baptized in the gospel. And what belief and baptized belief really means to have a firm faith in, right? As in what baptized means to be cleansed, to have a Christian name. So basically what it's saying is you have to have a, you have, like, you have to be a firm faith in your Christianity to be saved. You can't be like, well, you just get baptized but not believe. You have to do both. You have to actually believe in what you're doing. You have to be baptized to confirm that you're a Christian, that you're a cleansed Christian. And then also, but like afterwards, it says the signs of them who believe that the name shall cast out devils and they shall speak with new tongues. Basically, they'll be able to do what Jesus did because they're clean. See, Jesus got baptized because he wouldn't have a connection with the Father, right? So he had to get baptized to have a connection with the Holy Spirit and the Father. If he didn't get baptized, he wouldn't be cleansed, he wouldn't have a Christian name, and he wouldn't be able to go and continue with his work because it would be all in vain. <laughs> Uh, well, um, the, the Israelites, they went, they went through the Red Sea perfectly dry. Mm -hmm. I want to stay dry, too. <laughs> and, and if Jesus is my example, can't I use his baptism for me? I mean, you all talk about sub, substitutionary atonement, atonement, something like that. So he got baptized for me. Mm -hmm. But it's not even, that's not a literal, it's not a literal term. Like, Jesus asked us to get baptized because he got baptized. He wanted to ask us to do something that he never did. Because it also says in the Bible, carry our cross daily. He carried his cross, we have to carry ours too. You know what I'm saying? Like it's saying, he won't be able to do something. He won't, ever, he won't ask us to. <laughs> he, won't, 
he wouldn't ask us to do something that he never did before. So he wouldn't ask us to get baptized if he never got baptized. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's like your parents, for instance, if they did something, if they do something, they wouldn't ask us to do something that never did it before. So it's also like, it's a faith thing too. It's a trust thing. So it says we got back, he got baptized for us. That means he led the example for us to get baptized. How come I'm over 40 and he knows that stuff and I don't? <laughs> it sounds like you need to go hear Mr. Kim a little bit more. All right. Uh, just a couple of things I want to throw out. Luke 7, verse 30. Very, very direct appeal not to reject baptism. Uh, very good, young man, by the way. Amen. Yeah, she Thank you, fought hard. It's just one verse, Luke 7, verse 30. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Rejecting a gift at some point becomes rejecting the giver mm. of that gift. And, and one more quick thing. I worked with an evangelist and a guy did not want to get baptized. And we hammered doctrine after doctrine. And finally the evangelist said, wait a minute. Behind every rejection of doctrine is also a lifestyle issue, woman at the well. The guy was pushed into a swimming pool at age four to learn swimming, almost drowned, and he did not want to be pushed underwater. Had nothing to do with theology. And, and so we got to reach not just the mind, but the heart and see what's behind rejecting doctrine. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Thank you. Your Honor, I'm satisfied. Thank you. You may sit down then. Ms. Farmer? Your Honor, uh, we now have in this country a law that says you must worship on Sunday and the penalty of breaking this law is death however there are people in this room who insist on breaking this law now I'm a Christian too and in my Bible it says in Romans 13 1 let every soul be subject unto the higher powers for there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. I want to know by what authority do you think you can break this law? I appreciate that question because we've been trying to get people to obey the law around here for a very long time. <laughs> Sir, would you... We have a hand up. Go ahead and come forward, please. Please state your name. James Mylon. Do you have a criminal record that would bear on your credibility today? Uh, let's see. It's seven years have passed. I think I'm good. Right? No. I'm good. I'm good. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Do you By what authority? Do you, do you understand the question? I believe so. Let me, let me restate it and see if I understand. By what authority do I keep the Sabbath, the Saturday as a Sabbath? Right. I, I want to know why it is you believe you can break the, the All law. Right. Sorry to interrupt. There's a crying baby. We, we like respect and order in this courtroom. So <laughs> please, please quiet the child. Thank you. As a Seventh-day seven Adventist, I believe that God is the ultimate authority and the Bible is his word. Now, before I move on... Speaking oh, to the mic. Before I move on, I would like to consult my counsel just for a moment. I have severe stage fright. Please bow your heads with me. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you for this wonderful day. I thank you for your many blessings. And Lord, I ask now for your Holy Spirit to speak through me. Lord, I need your help. You know my limitations. Thank you so much for loving me and being with me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. And by the way, I'm a pastor, so a pastor with stage fright, that's not very good, is it? 
Anyway, so by what authority? I'm sorry, I step away from this. I'm used to uh, a headset microphone. Like I stated before, as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, I believe God is ultimate authority. And his word is where we find his teachings so we can understand how to follow him. So first, what I want to start out with is we all know Exodus 20, verse 8, I believe. And this is where God, the one time in his Ten Commandments, says, remember. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay, keep that in your minds. Now let's look. We need to know about the Ten Commandments. If you look at Exodus 34, verse 1, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. I will write these, write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So as we see right now, this is a hand of God writing these Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. Amen? Now here's the one. I'm going to make this really simple for you. There's two, three more verses. The next verse is Malachi 3.6. Turn with me to Malachi 3.6, if you have a Bible. I'm almost there. I know it by heart, but uh, I'll read it for you. It says, For I am God, I do not change. For I am God, I do not change. So now we know we wrote, he wrote these Ten Commandments in stone with his own hand. If he says he does not change, how can those change to another day? So even though the laws of the land say you should worship on this day, God has said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And in Malachi 3.6, for I am God, I do not change. Now, this is where it sets for me. John 14.15, very simply. John 14.15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. I love Jesus Christ. I love my God. Therefore, I will keep his commandments. Now, sir, yes. I think she has another question. Oh, yes. I appreciate what you're saying, but I don't think it addresses what's in 13 verse 1 that says you are to obey civil government. And I would agree with you as long as civil government is not in contrast with God's authority. And I'm not, trying to state God's authority right now. I understand, but that's not what it says in this verse. It says, Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. Okay. So unless you can show me where it says there's something else going on here. What verse was it? This is Romans 13, 1 and 2. Romans 13, 1 and 2. I'll be honest with you. I heard the Sabbath defending that, and I'm coming up. I didn't even look at the context of your okay. verse. I apologize. That was acting a little bit rash on my part, and it's probably not the wisest thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm a Christian too. I, I have 100% belief that God is the ultimate authority, but the Bible says here you are to obey civil authority as, in, as God. And the law says Sunday worship on penalty of death. Thank you. Uh, Ma'am, no. No? Sorry, no. One witness at a time. Thank you, though. Okay. Well, I'll be honest with you. I didn't read it. I didn't. I'm sure I I need to read around that because what we need to do, we can't just take one text. Usually, if you take just one text, you're taking out of context. So you need to round it. And if I read around it and studied it a little bit more, I would have the answer for you, which I don't. Yes. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. I think there was another hand up here. Mr. Mundell, Matthew Mundell, go ahead and come forward, please. Well, I just have one text um, that is in contrast to that. Um, As my brother shared about how we can see the Sabbath, now it says that we ought to obey God rather than men. Where is this verse? This is found in Acts 5 and verse 29. 
and that, that's what you have to compare. You have to compare, and if the scriptures say, show that, that the Sabbath is God's word, that, that the Sabbath is what we should keep, and that it is um, God's holy day, then we should obey God rather than man. I will accept that as a partial answer, but yes, okay. Thank you. <laughs> Let me just say a few more things. Uh, in Romans 13, if you really look at that chapter, you see that um, the, Paul is talking about civil authority, and he's talking about the last six, verse, last six commandments of the Ten Commandments. So it really does apply to civil authority. But now the question becomes, is there a distinction between civil authority and God's authority? And actually, Jesus answers that question in Matthew 22 when he says, render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's. But he doesn't say anything about what if there's some overlap. Well, to top that off is Acts 5.29. When there's overlap, it says, you know, obey God rather than man. And, of course, there's multiple examples in the Bible, uh, Daniel 3, Daniel 5, of people actually doing that. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Mendoza? Actually, that's uh, Valadez. I'm sorry, Mr. Valadez. Yes, sir. Apologize. No problem, Your Honor. It's an honor for me to be here this uh, morning. And, um, you know, I've been recently sent by the uh, Southern Baptist Missions to this small town in Keene, Texas. Not sure if you guys heard of it. Not only am I a prosecutor, but I'm also a pastor there. And we're doing church planting because these Adventists need to know about the gospel, Your Honor. <laughs> Focus too much on doctrines, they need Jesus. So I've been sent there, you know, and since I've been sent there, I obviously had to do some homework. So, you know, I went to Adventist.org where you guys list your beliefs there. And there's one of these, uh, uh, one of many false doctrines that I just want to talk about this morning. And basically I read in... Uh, your uh, fundamental beliefs number 18, which you call the gift of prophecy. It says that as the Lord's messenger, this Ellen G. White, as the Lord's messenger, her writings are a continuing and authoritative source of truth which provide for the church comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction. Well, Your Honor, this is my question. As a good Christian, I believe in the Bible and the Bible only as a source of doctrine and guidance for Christian living. Therefore, I reject, and as the Bible rightly states, every modern-day prophet. What do you say about that? Mr. King? So, Your Honor, uh, you knew him by name. I mean... I didn't know you by name, did I? That's what I'm saying. You didn't know my name, but you know his. Trust me, I try to keep a very fair courtroom, no matter if I know him or don't know him. Okay. I, Thank I, you. I, I Justice it. is blind. Good morning, Your Honor. Courtroom. Good morning. Would you uh, restate the question, please? Yes, sir. Uh, you know, uh, I believe in the Bible and the Bible alone as a source of doctrine and guidance for Christian living, where your fundamental belief number 18, as I quoted, states that Ellen G. White, the Lord's messenger, says that her writings are the authoritative source of truth, which provide your church with comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction. To uh, begin to answer the question, first I think that we have to understand what is the Bible. Um, in First Timothy chapter three, First Timothy chapter three. Beginning with verse. 14, Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and, been, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Amen. I second that. Now, Mr. Uh, Valdez, would you agree that the, the term scriptures means sacred writings? Yes, I, I would agree with you. Would you also agree that in this passage of scripture, we are told that a scripture is given by inspiration? Yes. Would you also agree that... The, okay, I'm going to interrupt you, sir. Sorry. sorry. Witnesses don't ask questions of the attorney. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank Thank you. He's the one asking the questions. That. Thank you, Your Honor. I was waiting for you to help me out there. Um, so as, as we look at this passage of Scripture, Paul is, at, is telling Timothy that he has known the Scriptures from a child. When Timothy was a child, and even during this time when Paul was writing, the Scriptures were defined as the Old Testament. What we now term as the Bible was not canonized by the church or put into a form, a book form, and a sort of cohesive whole until several hundred years later. Sir, so are you saying LNG White is part of canon now? What I'm saying is that the term scriptures, as we understand it, uh, does not simply embrace what we find between the two leaves or the two covers of this Bible, but must apply to all sacred writings. In fact, we'll find that in the Bible there are prophets mentioned that are not quoted anywhere in the sacred canon. The book of Jasher, um, there are other prophets as well um, that, whose writings were not, were not found in the Bible. And so, but yet they were respected as prophets and are referred to um, as, as those through whom Scripture came. Now, the other thing I would point out is that God had prophesied that we would continue to have the gift of prophecy. In fact, if we turn to Joel chapter 2... Kind of like Joseph Smith. I would let, let's let's look at, at Joel chapter two because there there's a couple of issues. One is the fact that there would be the gift of prophecy, and then the other issue that we must clarify is what are the signs of a true prophet. So once you find that we do have there there is support for having modern day prophets, then we need to look and see what are some of the signs of a true prophet. And does Ellen White, in fact, meet those signs? And so if we look at Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, it reads, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And so, and it continues, it says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And as we look at this, we find Peter mentioning this very text as a fulfillment of prophecy in the book of Acts. And when they were asked, you know, as the disciples began to preach on the day of Pentecost, um, in, in, in Acts chapter 2, we find that there were some that were amazed and doubted, saying to one another in Acts chapter 2, verse 12, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and etc. We just read this. Now, Peter and Joel, the prophet Joel used the term in the last days. If I say that the last half of my Bible or the last pages of my Bible that term last extends into the very last page. And if Peter identified the fulfillment of this prophecy as beginning with Pentecost, then we must also believe that God will continue to pour out of his spirit until the very last day of earth's history. And so we, we find that, uh, just to keep things short, we as Seventh-day Adventists believe that God's spirit is continuing to be poured out and we see a, a fulfillment of that. We see that 
the end time church would have two identifying marks among many others, but they would keep the commandments of God, including the seventh day of the week as a Sabbath according to the fourth commandment, and that they would have a prophet um, according to Revelation 12, 17, Revelation 19, verse 10. And so we believe that this um, prophet or this gift of uh, th th this prophecy that there would be a prophet is fulfilled in the life and ministry of Mrs. Ellen G. White. Satisfy your honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. King. Thank you, Brother King. Uh, just one thing I just want to ask real, uh, add really quick is that the fact that um, Jesus Christ said that in the last days there would be false prophets is also evidence that there will be true prophets. Amen? Amen? The other thing is that Ephesians chapter 4 talks about the gifts that will exist in the church, and amongst those gifts is the spirit of prophecy. And uh, last but not least, the Bible commands us to test the prophets whether or not they are of God or not. Thank you. All right, next question, Mr. Myers. Now I must uh, confess, Your Honor, that after listening to some of these answers, my heart is strangely warmed, and I maybe would like to get together with you guys a little bit later and find out a little bit more about your, your faith. You know your Bibles. You don't look impressed. I mean, are you guys soul winners or what? I mean, anyway. But I'm not actually, like, fully convinced yet. I do have, like, one more thing I just need to kind of work out in my mind, and I don't think you're going to be able to answer this. So you guys believe that... Um, Jesus did not enter into the most holy place before the throne of God until 1844, which is really weird because in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56, Stephen, as he is about to be stoned, the Bible says, but he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Um, it is clear here that Christ was in the presence of God, at the right hand of God, not in some holy place. And so I don't understand how you as Adventists can teach that it was not until 1844, at the end of this 2300-year prophecy, that Jesus uh, supposedly moved into the presence of God. Uh, would you keep that child uh, quiet, please? Thank you. I just want to say that I'm really impressed with that child because when the judge said, be quiet, the child like actually got quiet. It was like amazing. Like, such a... <laughs> Obedience. State your name, please. Ruben Nauman. Pardon? Ruben Nauman. Good morning, sir. Good morning. So I understand that your question is, is why do we as Adventists believe that Christ did not move into the most holy place until 1844? First, let's take and turn to Exodus 25, oops, verses 8 and 9. And it says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, according to all that I have shown thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, and after the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. Okay. So, background information. Moses is up on Mount Sinai. And he's receiving the Ten Commandments, and God also tells him this is after the golden calf. To, that God wants to come be with them, and he wants them to make this sanctuary. And the next few chapters take 
and talk about how it's to be made. So let's take, and uh, it's actually in chapter 25, we find it talks about a table of showbread. In verse 23, and it says, Thou shalt make a table of shittim wood, two cubics shall be the length thereof, and a cubic the breadth of thereof, and a cubic the, and a half the height thereof. Now as we read down um, and read other parts about this table of showbread, we find that there is going to be two crowns on it. There's going to be two stacks of bread with six loaves in each stack. So there's 12 all together, right? Now, this is in the holy place. And I understand from my knowledge of you that you teach a lot with the sanctuary. That's right. Okay. So. By the way, I understand you do tours of the sanctuary. Yes. Unfortunately, we don't have 75 minutes right now, so. No, I'm going to keep it short. Try to get to your answer as quickly as you can. Thank you. John chapter 6, verse 48. If I can find it here. Your Honor, did you say this uh, gentleman gives presentations on the sanctuary? He's wearing a blue shirt and a red tie, so I think so. (laughs) Somebody's been through Messiah's mansion. Now here in John 6, Jesus is speaking. And he says, verse 48, that I am that bread of life. So now... We see that bread represents Jesus. Now, if we turn to John 14, I believe, um, in verse, let me see, in verse 9, Jesus is with his disciples and they ask him to show them the Father. In verse 9, he replies to them, Jesus saith unto him, talking about Philip, Have I been so long a time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? So, Jesus and his Father are one. Now remember I said there's two crowns on that. There's two equal stacks of bread. This is where we find Christ moving to standing next to his father in your reference to um, Stephen. Right, right. So now, if we were to go to Daniel 14, or Daniel 8, 14, sorry. Yes, sir. And we were to study that all out, we would find that with the study, along with the Day of Atonement, that there is once a year, when the high priest, which Christ is our high priest, right, would move in to the most holy place and cleanse the sanctuary. Now, Exodus 25 and verse 8 and 9 says that the earthly sanctuaries were a pattern of the heavenly sanctuary. So what happens in the earthly sanctuary also happens in the heavenly sanctuary. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, and that associated prophecy is referring to when Christ was going to finish his work, in the holy place. He's going to move into the most holy place and he's going to start taking and going through the records and cleansing the heavenly sanctuary of the sins recorded there. That was a good sermon. I'm going to use some of that in my sanctuary presentations. However, However, uh, Stephen said that he saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God. This is immediately after his resurrection. He is standing in the most holy place. You Adventists teach that he does not get to the most holy place until 1844. Now, please understand that the Old Testament shadows were just shadows. They weren't the reality. 
Stephen is here speaking the reality that Christ entered into the most holy place upon his resurrection. Okay, what was that reference that you were given? Acts chapter 7, verse 55 and 56. Okay, in these two verses, it does not say specifically where he is standing beside the Father. Like I said, with that table of showbread, it was representing Christ, the bread there. But since Christ and his Father are one, they're also equal, right? He had two equal stacks of bread. So, we can also see the Father being there. And that's also the only place that has two crowns, kings, representing where two kings would be. Objection, Your Honor. <laughs> What's the basis? Um, my feelings. <laughs> Overruled. All right. Let but me, you can um, ask another question. Yeah, I, I, let me answer um, with this. First of all, um, if, you, if you look at Revelation chapter 1, very good answer. Um, to add to that, if you look at Revelation chapter 1, um, by the way, in Exodus 25, right after the reading of the, candles, of, of the table of showbread, there is the description of the seven-branch candlestick, which is also found in the holy place. And uh, if you read Revelation chapter 1, you will see that uh, Jesus is standing, is seen standing in the midst of seven golden candlesticks. You'll also see it in Revelation chapter 4. Uh, but in Revelation chapter 4, uh, you see the entire throne room. You see God's throne. You see the candlestick, which is right before the throne, which basically means that Jesus has always been in the presence of God. I mean, it doesn't indicate that it was the most holy place. God's presence fills heaven. So when Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, question. the right hand of God is not a position um, um, so much as it is representing Christ's authority. When Jesus returns, he says, you will see the Son of Man uh, sitting on the right hand of power. It's not talking about a particular location. It's talking about being the highest in command. So once again, John the Revelator, as he's seen this vision uh, in 95 AD, uh, 40 something years or 50 something years after the resurrection of Christ, he sees Jesus in the presence of God, but standing among, um, in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, which is clearly in the holy place. And I'll add one more thing, it's this, that the Christ moving from holy place to most holy place should not be thought of geographically so much as it should be thought of ministratively. In other words, Christ was moving from one aspect of ministry to another aspect of ministry simply symbolized by holy place and most holy place. So Thank where you. do I get baptized? <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right, I just want to end here. How many of you were scared to come up front? Good, we have our uh, volunteers for the next mock trial. <laughs> we'll give you a little time to, to get ready. Uh, how would you like it if you were not volunteered, but summoned and forced to come to defend your faith? You know, we should look at that as an honor, Amen. but an honor that we are ready to meet. Myself included. Believe me, it's a lot easier to be a judge or an attorney than to be the witness answering the questions. But I want to end with a quote from the book Evangelism. It's on page 69. Search the scriptures. Not skim, but search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. Every position of truth Every position of truth taken by our people will bear the criticism of the greatest minds. The highest of the world's great men will be brought in contact with truth and therefore every position we take should be critically examined and tested by the scriptures.
And our lead prosecutor, I see it's, he's so blessed by this, so changed, he's even left being a prosecutor. You just saw. Um, Every position we take should be critically examined, tested by the scriptures. Now we seem to be unnoticed, but that will not always be. Movements are at work to bring us to the front. And if our theories of truth can be picked to pieces by historians or the world's greatest men, it will be done. We must individually know for ourselves what is truth and be prepared to give a reason of the hope that we have with meekness and fear, not in a proud, boasting self-sufficiency, but with the Spirit of Christ. It's not just what you say, but how you say it. The Spirit you say it in that will change and move hearts. We are nearing the time when we, will, we shall stand individually. That's why there's no lifeline here, except vertical. We are nearing the time when we shall stand individually alone to answer for our belief. Religious errors are multiplying and entwining themselves with satanic power about the people. There is scarcely a doctrine in the Bible that has not been denied. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for truth. And Lord, we thank you that you've given each of us a mind that if we take the time, we can sharpen these minds to be able to give answers to the questions that are asked. Help us, Lord, to put answers there so that when the time comes, we will have something for you to work with, to bring to our minds the right answers, the answers that will move and change people. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.